1: DERM.com.
3: From the blackest corners of your mind, they call pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. As I mentioned last week, we have something special lined up for you tonight. Not only are we announcing the winners of our Flash Fiction Contest, but you'll hear the winning stories themselves, too. As a quick refresher, our Flash Fiction Contest this time around was based on the theme of The Changing Seasons. And despite a slower start... We had a record number of entries. Selecting one winner was no easy feat. Even considering we picked a handful of runners-up, there were more stories that were serious contenders for the top spots. Thank you to everyone who entered and for sharing your terrifying tale of the seasons with us. As with any contest, there have to be winners. And after much deliberation, we've collected three runners up and one winner to share with you tonight, Children of the Night. The runners up are presented in no particular order, followed by the winner to cap off our episode. So, you know what? Let's skip the preamble from me this week and get straight to our fiction. The first runner up in our Changing Seasons Flash Fiction Contest. Comes to us from Frank O'Rido. Frank O'Rido is a writer of weird fiction living in the wilds of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His work has appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Flame Tree Press, and the year's best hardcore horror, among many others. When not writing, Frank spends his time creating elaborate meals for his wife and ever hungering children. Children of the Night, join me for Frank Arito's Dandelion Spring, a runner-up in this year's Flash Fiction Contest.
4: gazed out the living room window at the short yellow flowers dotting her front lawn she looked forward to their arrival all through the harsh pittsburgh winters not just because they meant spring had sprung but because of what came next emma searched the yard looking for green stalks topped by balls of white fluff as if tiny clouds had bloomed in the night she had always loved the puffballs loved how with one breath She could fill the air with tiny white parachutes carrying dandelion seeds all over the world. And you wished, of course. Wishing wasn't maybe the best part, but it was tradition. And when you blew apart that first dandelion puff, filling the air with white motes of magic, who knew what might happen? Then she saw it a single dandelion puff against the edge of the sidewalk. Emma pushed her feet into the slippers her mother kept by the front door and shuffled out into the spring morning. Not too quickly. The first dandelion puff was special. She treated the event with all the reverence her ten years could muster. She gently plucked the stalk from the earth. Raising the puff to her lips, Emma paused, admiring its perfection. Hey, turdhead! Tiffany Stewart was three years older than Emma and ugly. Not outside, where people could see. Outside, she had blue eyes and golden hair like a Disney princess. But the ugly was there, rotten and stinky. It blazed from her blue eyes when she looked at Emma. And when she opened her mouth, the ugly poured out like throw-up. What you doing, turdhead? Tiffany called in that voice bullies use. Loud enough for kids to hear, but never parents or teachers. Emma didn't answer. She wouldn't let Tiffany ruin this. Cradling the puff, she turned and walked toward the end of the block. Tiffany wouldn't follow. She would go home and brush all that hair. Maybe enjoy a nice breakfast of poop flakes. Emma counted her steps. One, two, the puffball still silver perfection in her hand. Three, four, ten steps. Then she would stop and blow. Tiffany would not ruin this. But hadn't she already? The first dandelion puff was supposed to be magical. I should feel happy, full of sunshine. Instead, what filled Emma was a dark hatred for the girl whose footsteps now rang out as she gave chase. Emma took one last look at the spring's first puffball, now shimmery from her tears, and blue. As a thousand seeds took flight, Emma made her wish, not with words, but with the dark feelings swirling in her gut. A hand clamped onto Emma, yanking her around. Oh, did baby find a flower? Tiffany's smile was snake-like. Don't you ever run from me, turdhead. Emma was supposed to cry now. Instead, she took a deep breath and blew. Not with the gentle reverence she'd shown the dandelion puff, but as if she were blowing out the candles on a hundred-year-old's birthday cake. The side of Tiffany Stewart's head separated into thousands of tiny white particles and took flight. Emma could see inside Tiffany's face, a science book diagram of muscle and bone, pink tongue peeking from between half-gone teeth. Tiffany's right eye strained to see the side of her own head, and she let loose a high, keening wail, sounding almost like a question. Emma reached to cover the bully's mouth. Her hand brushed Tiffany's lips and the lower half of the girl's face burst apart in a shower of white motes. The keening stopped. Tiffany had nothing left to scream with. Bits of the bully clung to Emma's fingers. She waved her hand back and forth, sending more of Tiffany billowing out on the spring air. Her pink blouse dissolved as readily as the flesh and bone beneath. Emma saw half-recognized organs, lung, liver, heart, each exposed for only a moment before a stray breeze spread them across the neighborhood. I never wanted this, Emma said, but she knew the words to be at least half a lie. Part of her wanted something exactly like this, justice as perfect and poetic as any fairy tale. Emma thought she heard a door open. Could they help? No. No one could help this. But they would see. They would know what she'd wished for. Emma didn't call out. Instead, she closed her eyes and mouth tight and ran forward, arms waving. For a moment, something soft as snowflakes, but warm instead of cold, enveloped her. Then she was through. She ran ten steps, eyes still closed, before she fell to the sidewalk. Ignoring her scraped knees, Emma looked back. Behind her, the sidewalk was empty. Emma stayed inside the rest of that spring and summer. She refused to join the volunteers who walked the streets calling Tiffany's name. Winter was better. Emma liked the snow. Snow hid things. But the snow eventually melted. The sunlight had changed. That's how Emma knew it would be this morning. Spring sunshine poured into her room, warm and golden, with none of winter's pale harshness. Emma trudged down the stairs and out the front door. Overnight, the lawn had filled with dandelions. But they were different this year, as Emma knew they would be. This spring, the neighborhood lawns bloomed with tiny, perfect faces. Tiffany Stewart's face. The blossoms turned slowly toward Emma as if blown by some freak wind. They stared at her through a thousand tiny, sky-blue eyes. Then they opened their mouths and screamed. Other doors opened. Neighbors' screams joined those of the Tiffany-faced dandelions. Behind Emma, a coffee cup shattered as her mother stumbled onto the porch. Emma walked through the yard, tiny, wailing faces crunching wetly beneath her bare feet. At the edge of the sidewalk, she reached down and plucked a tall green stalk from the earth. The crowning puffball glowed in the morning sun. Emma held the first dandelion puff of spring to her lips and blew out a long, shaking breath. As a thousand delicate seeds took flight, she made her wish.
3: That was Frank Orito's Dandelion Spring, as read by Emily Strand. Emily Strand is a writer, musician, and college professor living in Ohio who really enjoys robots. Thank you, Emily. Our second runner-up this evening comes to us from Mia Dahlia. Mia Dahlia is an author, lifelong reader, and longtime reviewer of All Things Fantastic, Scary, and Strange. Her short fiction has appeared online at Night Terror Novels, 50 Word Stories, Flash Fiction Magazine, Pyre Magazine, Tales from the Moonlit Path, and in print anthologies with Sunbury Press, Hellbound Press, Mystery Magazine, Dragon Roost Press, Headshot Press, Unsettling Reads, Black Ink Fiction. Phobica Press, and Dracula Beyond Stoker magazine. Mia's work is soon to be featured in the upcoming anthologies by WMB Anthology of Lunar Horror, Wandering Wave Press, and Off-Topic Publishing. Her debut novel, Estate Sale, was just released in April of this year. Listen with me, children of the night, to Mia Dahlia's Dig a runner-up in our flash fiction contest. Once the spring comes and the ground thaws out, we'll bury the bodies. For now, they're piled in the furthest corner of the settlement under the largest tarp we could find. An argument was made to keep them closer, to make sure they stay dead. But even these days, no one wants to live like that. You got to have some separation, some distance between you and the madness out there. Some space to pretend, however briefly, that everything's okay. So the bodies, it was agreed, would be kept out of sight, with someone regularly checking on them. That someone is me. No, I didn't draw the short straw or anything like that. It's just my job. When the earth is once again pliable under my shovel, I'll bury the bodies, too. I am the undertaker. In the world before, I pushed papers around, a skill no one needs or wants anymore. I was an impractical person, spoiled by modern technology. For repairs, I phoned a maintenance man. For food, I used a delivery app. When everything went to hell, I survived against all odds. Every apocalyptic show has a character like that. Their arc typically sees them eventually becoming heroic in their own right. Well, that's fiction. In real life, useless people, by and large, stay useless. Old dogs new tricks. I fell in with a good group of people. I was lucky. They liked me well enough to let me stay, and tolerated me well enough for my latent talent to emerge at last, apparently. I'm good with a shovel. Some people here have proper weapons like guns, machetes, crossbows even. Some have adapted common objects and tools like crowbars and pitchforks. Me? I got my shovel. I dig. That's what they call me now, too. Dig. People come and go. Some die, some move in, some move on. Short of wearing a name tag, I can't expect anyone to remember my real name. Some days even I don't. It's something from a different life like long, hot showers and cable TV. I don't just deal with burying the dead. In a world like this, you have to diversify. I help with gardening, construction, any place that might require digging. In some ways, this is the most useful my life had ever been. It's good to keep busy, otherwise the thoughts flood in. The kind it's best to avoid. I don't need to speculate what happened to people I knew and loved. The truth is brutal but undeniable. The old world is gone. The new one belongs to the dead. I wake up and exhale a cloud. It lingers in the air before me for a moment, then dissipates. Even fully dressed in the warmest layers I own and cocooned in a sleeping bag, I still lose most of my body heat at night. It's why I sleep in shifts, the way most do around here. The full eight might get you killed. Three to four is usually pretty safe. I shut off the tinny alarm on my wristwatch and check the time. I don't know why. It doesn't really matter and hasn't in a long while. My watch is on its last battery. It's a miracle I was even able to find one of those in the first place. When it dies, my world will become timeless, guided only by the sun and the moon and the changing of seasons. I get up, roll up my bag, and go outside to piss. The wind steals but little body heat I may have been holding on to. I zip up, go back inside, and start exercising. Push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, jumping jacks. All the things I used to promise myself I'd do in the world before I never got around to. Now they are part of my daily routine. It has nothing to do with staying in shape. Shoveling and a starvation diet are enough to keep me lean and ropey with muscle. The exercise is all about getting the blood flowing. It works, too. I warm up, if barely, then grab my shovel and head out into the still dark world to do my rounds. The dead don't like the winter any more than I do. It won't kill them, but it does slow them down. It's why most of the still surviving settlements are up north. I walk the perimeter wall, patched up and reinforced so many times, it's a Frankenstein like creation, each scar a reminder of failed efforts and lost lives. Now that my eyes have adjusted, I can see my way by the light of the stars. Back in my old life, I've never seen so many their glowing punctuation marks across a vast, dark screen. I found an old book on astronomy, and I've been trying to learn the constellations. Now that this world has so little to offer, I find myself studying the skies, looking for others. It's unfathomable to think we are alone in the universe. What I want to know is, are those out there friendly or hostile? Would they save us if they could? Humanity had always looked for enemies. The primitive tribes battled for supremacy. The winners went on to slaughter animals and foobar mother nature. And always, always each other. War after war, always looking for the proverbial other, arming ourselves against any potential threats. Striking out for all the wrong reasons. Everyone doing stupid, dangerous things in the name of some spurious safety. Well, everyone was wrong. The world ended with neither a whisper nor a bang, but with a groan of the reanimated dead. And no matter how many movies and TV shows people have seen with that very same scenario, no one was prepared. Everyone made the same dumb mistakes, and died, died, died. Our settlement is better fortified than most. It used to be a high-security prison, an ugly gray building that, on winter days, tends to blend into the cloudy skies above it. A working farm might have been better, or maybe one of those hippie-slash-bougie self-sustaining communities. My group chose safety over amenities. We hadn't counted on how brutal the winter would get. The last one, after all, was so mild. Now here we are, slowly starving to death, slowly losing our minds, but safe. It's all about trade-offs these days, what you're willing to live with and without. Me? I don't go into any of the internal politics of the place. I don't sit around praying for spring like some, either. It'll come when it'll come. Some days the sun barely makes its way through the clouds, and it's difficult to imagine spring's arrival at all. I check the pile of corpses in the far corner. The dead are still beneath their tarp, quiet and resting at last. I walk on. The wind is piercing straight through my clothes. It smells clean and pure. Nothing like in the warmer months when it seems perpetually saturated with the stench of putrefaction. You'd be surprised what you can get used to. I have been constantly surprising myself these last few years, pushing the boundaries further and further and never quite hitting a wall. I suppose the basic human drive to survive makes our tolerances malleable, our conscience elastic. My head swims with hunger. I try to imagine the last time I ate. Food won't grow up here, not in this climate. You gotta make do with scavenged goods. Cans of non-perishables, MREs if you're lucky. Sometimes you have to make your own luck. Though... This place is running out of chances. Soon, I know, I'll have to move on. I want to live. I had never realized how much before. Life was always a given. Now, it's a gift, when I've been clinging to desperately. It's strange that in a world with so little to offer or look forward to, I've suddenly become dedicated to surviving at all costs. I walk until I come across Chop, just pacing around. True to his moniker, Chop's a lumberjack, one of those jobs that translated perfectly for the New World Order. He's got broad shoulders and monstrous arms. We're all out of trees inside the grounds. Occasionally, he ventures outside of the gates to bring back some firewood. But the last time, there was very nearly a perimeter breach. So now he's been benched. Better alive than warm. Chop wouldn't normally be my first choice. But needs must. He's huge. But like I said, I'm good with a shovel. He doesn't see it coming. Not the first hit, not the ones after. I'm thorough. I crush his head. My muscles strain against the weight of him, but I manage to drag it to the tarped pile. Then, with sharp hits of my shovel's blade, I sever the left leg. It's not ideal, but it'll have to do. Chop's body will keep me alive for a while longer yet. I'm determined to see the spring. That was Mia Dahlia's Dig, as read by me. As always, if you want to know more about me, you can check out the About section of the Tales to Terrify website, or drop me a line on social media.
0: Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp,
2: H-E-L-P. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
3: Our final runner-up tale comes our way from Nathaniel Lee. Nate puts words in various orders. Sometimes people give him money afterward. No one knows why. You can find more of his writings, though, at mirrorshards.net, including a lot of free short and microfiction and a very intermittently updated blog. Lend me your ears, children of the night. For Nathaniel Lee's The Morning After, our final runner-up in our flash fiction contest.
5: This was the van they arrived in, that evening of the winter solstice. It still reeks of cheap beer and weed smoke. You can see the front tires are both punctured, the nails still sticking out, though the old boards were shattered to splinters when the van ran over them. Those boards had spent a long time in the mud, waiting for someone to drive in cautiously over them. But the spikes did their job for all their rust. Here inside the Cooper's house is where the first one fell. They approached to ask us for use of a telephone, as theirs were unexpectedly non-functional. We had destroyed the tower long ago, shortly after it was built, and never reported it to the cellular company. They had all eaten and drunk what was offered to them, but the foppish one ate most greedily, and was the most inebriated of them to start with. When he slipped into unconsciousness, the others grew suspicious. Talia Cooper slit his throat at the head of the table and his blood mingled with the spilled stew and its sacred mushrooms. After the others fled out the back door and left Talia to the harvest, they passed through the barn and damaged the altar. Unfortunate, but such losses can be repaired. The tall and muscular one also stepped into one of the foothold traps concealed in the straw, but he was able to pry the jaws apart and continue on. He left only a spray of blood across the walls, not enough to harvest. By the time they had fled into the wheat field, young Jerome had reached the town hall and raised the alarm. The bells tolled, and we all roused to our duty. Maria Edgewood claimed the next harvest. The timid one stumbled unexpectedly on one of our special scarecrows, the gifts of prior harvests. And in her fear, she fell backwards. Maria caught her. Maria cannot wield the heavy hammers or pitchforks, but she carries a small sickle and is expert in its use. Maria harvested the girl while her friends ran on unaware. These deep gouges in the earth, with furrows torn and chaos and stalks trampled to uselessness, mark an unfortunate reversal. Old Herschel, overzealous as ever, piloted the combine harvester out to the field, thinking to drive the sacrifices back toward the center of town and the church. The muscular one leaped the blades despite his injured leg and climbed to clench with Herschel on the driver's seat. Even then, Herschel might have prevailed with his knife, except that the dark-eyed woman struck him squarely in the temple with a hurled rock. She and the muscular one shared a joy in athletics, in running and throwing, the faded modern mimicry of the ancient war games. Herschel fell upon his own great machine. Such deaths cannot be counted part of the harvest. In the woods, Gregory Blau tracked them by scent of blood, his hound, Ulf, keen despite his age. Three of them entered, and Gregory claimed one with a clean musket ball hit to the lower spine. Gregory is an expert, and his blow was disabling, yet left the throat clean for the harvest. The muscular one was strong of body and mind, and his blood would be the most valued when the morning came. The dark-eyed woman and the soft man were the last two. They fled the forest and found the river. They evaded the pitfalls and the nets and entered the boathouse safely. However, in their haste to untie the fishing runabout, they failed to detect Uther Paulson, hidden beneath the tarps in the stern. His malformations make him unable to pursue his duty in the normal manner, but he has cultivated a great art of concealment and stillness. Alas, his flair for the dramatic led him to wait over long, and while he was able to claim the soft man and drag him into the grip of the river, the dark-eyed woman struck him with a blow when he was caught in the outboard motor's blades. The river is also hungry, and this manner of sacrifice is an acceptable harvest. We had a final attempt— when the dark-eyed woman and her stolen boat reached the bridge that demarcates the border of the town. Gregory was there, with his musket loaded. He fired, but the darkness and the motion of the water spoiled his shot, and he struck only the bones of her hand. The Coopers tried next, with their small dinghy, but the woman had found in the barn the stock of flashbangs from the harvest before last, when the police had come to assist the cellular company repair team. Her aim was no less true with her one remaining arm. She knocked Talia, Jerome, and Yarrow senseless into the water. At the last, Maria leapt from the bridge, hoping to strike with her body and feed the river. But the dark-eyed woman turned the boat, and Maria was lost to the black waters. The dark-eyed woman passed out of our domain then, and the harvest was not fulfilled. We knew despair. And we gathered in the town square, all of us who were left. And we prayed and hoped that our own losses might suffice. That the laws might be bent just this once. That we might be shown mercy. But the world is hard and cruel. And there is no reward without payment. Blood for blood, life for life, action for reaction, justice for injustice. We served as best we could, in the only way we knew, and the rest of the world did not understand. A fire only burns when it has fuel, and a bargain is binding even on those who do not know they are party to it. We waited, and we watched. The bell rang on the hour. The night was cold. Our fears were real and solid. The bell rang again and again. The sun did not rise.
3: That was Nathaniel Lee's The Morning After as read by Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming. He remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson or for the more romantically inclined Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in The Narrator Nook and The Haven Discord servers. Links are in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew. Finally, from the twisted mind of author Erin Keating, we bring you the winning tale of our 2023 Changing Seasons Flash Fiction Contest. Erin Keating earned her B.A. in Creative Writing and Literature at Roanoke College and her M.A. in History at Drew University, mostly so she could continue to surround herself with old books. She currently works as a grant writer at an arts education nonprofit. When she's not reading or writing, she enjoys rock climbing, language learning, and playing bass guitar. Her fiction can be found in *Metamorphosis*, *Haven Spec*, and *Luna Station Quarterly*, among others. Listen with me, children of the night, to Aaron Keating's, "As Mother Said." the winner of our Changing Seasons Flash Fiction Contest.
0: Folk didn't suffer talk of ghosts, but few dared pass Mother's house after dark. Mother and daughter had lived beside the creek, Mother with her ink-stained fingers, and daughter with her two neat braids. Daughter, practice your letters, Mother would chide. Mother did not have much in the world, but she had her words, and the words kept them warm and fed. So. Daughter did as mother said, because she loved mother, and because she loved the squelch of the mud under her fingers as she drew letters in the soft creek bed. Daughter was a child meant for summer, for myrtle and pollywogs and berries so ripe they burst from the bush. But summer turned to fall, turned to dark and frigid winter. They shuttered the windows and sealed the drafts and tended the hearth, For months on end, it was only mother and daughter. Oily ink and rough paper. Daughter strained against the confines of the little house, pacing the worn boards and lawning for the wide-open fields of spring. Whenever she passed the shuttered window, she peered through the slats at the snow piling up outside. Daughter waited and paced, wrote and slept. Until one day... Mother fanned herself with her papers. Daughter, open the window. So daughter did as mother said, because she loved mother, and because she loved the bright light and fresh air, even if it was awfully cold. Daughter took to wearing her coat as she watched the world turn glassy beyond the open window. Wind danced through the little house, scattering mother's papers and snuffing the fire in the hearth. Still, Mother sweated. She took to bed wearing only her underclothes and flushed cheeks. Are you all right, Mother? Daughter asked. Daughter, let me rest. So, Daughter did as Mother said. Because she loved Mother, and because she loved that she could pace the worn boards without Mother scolding her to please be still. But the next morning, Mother still had not risen from her bed. Daughter pressed her fingers to Mother's forehead, feeling the heat ripple from her body. How can I make you better? Daughter pleaded. Mother didn't speak for a long time. Daughter listened to the rattling in Mother's chest like it was a language she'd learn if only she tried hard enough. Finally, Mother said, Daughter, practice your letters. That will get me out of this bed. So Daughter did as Mother said, because she loved Mother, and because she wanted nothing more than to cool her fever. Daughter sat at Mother's writing desk, bundled in her coat, her feet not reaching the floor. She wrote with oily ink and rough paper until her fingertips were as stained as Mother's. Her letters repeated over the page, her A's as bright and round as fresh apples, through her Z's, zigging and zagging. Daughter listened, stopping the scratching of her writing. Mother's gasping rasps and fevered fussing had gone quiet and still. It was working, daughter thought. But mother still had not risen from bed. Daughter mustn't be done practicing yet. She turned her letters to words. Daughter wrote until she had used up all the blank, rough paper, and then wrote over the same pages again. The glittering light of the sun against snow faded into early twilight. Still, Mother had not risen, so Daughter would not stop. She wrote without care for sleep or food, until the sun rose the next morning. When Daughter finally checked on Mother, Mother's ink-stained fingers were blue. And her skin was cold to the touch. The fever, it seemed, had broken. Daughter nearly wept with relief. Mother was getting better, and if only daughter kept practicing her letters, mother would wake from her quiet sleep. Daughter wrote until each page had been written over, until they were blackened and dripping with ink. The wind blew sideways. Sweeping snow through the open window. When daughter had at last run out of ink, snow had piled up under the writing desk, and her stiff fingers struggled to release her pen. Mother slept, still and silent, and cold as the snow. Daughter had done as mother had said, so why had she not gotten out of the bed? It could only mean, Dota reasoned that she had not yet practiced enough. No ink and no paper, Daughter took a knife and began carving her words into the walls of the house. Each stroke was deliberate, the lines straight, the curves done painfully slowly. Daughter focused on letter after tiring letter, word after tiring word. Into the walls she dug her hunger, her cold. Her loneliness. She carved mother's stillness and the smell that rose from her. The M in mother was sharp as fear. The O, a round, soft embrace. And when daughter's chapped hands bled and her sunken eyes drooped, daughter wrote how nice it must be to sleep as deeply and peacefully as mother. The townsfolk didn't suffer talk of ghosts but few dare pass Mother's house after dark, especially those who found them that spring. They all still remember opening the door and that first breath of air, too close and too ripe. Inside, the floorboards were wet and the bodies were rotting, and sentences wound round and round the walls, a story of fever and sleep, cold and hunger until ending mid-word with two sure, clean lines of a T. They were the neatest damn letters the townsfolk had ever read.
3: That was the winning entry of our 2023 Changing Seasons Flash Fiction Contest, Aaron Keating's As Mother Said, as read by Crystal Hammond. Crystal Hammond is a narrator-slash-writer, cancer survivor, and non-binary queer human. They grew up in rural North Carolina, nurtured by a steady diet of local blackbeard legends and Confederate ghost stories. These nuggets of folktale and myth fostered a lifelong love of storytelling and all the drama that goes with it. They also have a master's degree in biological anthropology and adore ugly cats. Feel free to check out their narration website at crystalhammond.com or find them on Twitter at TheKMHammond. Thank you, Crystal. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal, incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, Kathy Robinson, Lesel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew sebastiani with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, No derivatives license. Join us again next week as we blur the line between natural and supernatural with more Tales to Terrify.